Welcome to Medically Speaking, Auburn's own medical radio show with host Dr. Mark Vaughn of the Auburn Medical Group and Larry Finney. Yes, welcome to Medically Speaking Radio with Dr. Mark Vaughn and Larry Finney, his faithful sidekick. We're glad to come to you pre-recorded again this week. We apologize that we aren't giving away food as we have the last uh, two or three weeks. We'd give out the numbers, but it would do you no good to call. There's probably no one here. Maybe. <laughs> that's right. Maybe you could write down the number for two weeks from now when we're live uh, in the studio again. Uh, or likely you'd lose that and, you know, Ricky, don't lose that number. We'll, we'll remind you about it later. Yeah, we'll tell you when the time is right. We'll tell you when. Yep. So this week we're um, going to be occupied on Saturday morning. Yeah. You'll you'll want to. Uh, you you don't need to call. You'll you're gonna. Our guest here is going to have you just riveted to the radio. He was talking about uh, stomach and esophagus and acid. Yeah, stuff like that. Now we don't have much in the way of news uh, this week, but but uh, Doctor Von, did you not get some? You get some interesting email news, like like you're on email lists that that purport to present news, which is really a way of someone's way of <laughs> trying to sell something. Trying yes. to sell something. Yes. Okay. This this week's email was from a doctor in Texas who makes a device for tattoo removal, and it's uh, it's a way of getting a tattoo removed without having to pay for a, a laser removal, which is very expensive and and still doesn't get the whole thing off. His technique just uses um, infrared heat, burns it off essentially, and then you uh, have it heal up and put some uh, steroid cream on it so that you no longer have a tattoo, but you have this big burn scar afterwards. Anyway, to try to sell his product, he sent this uh, email that said that uh, tattoos don't say what you think they say. He particularly pointed out the the Asian characters, the Chinese or Japanese character tattoos that you see on people that, you know, especially martial artists and or just anybody, they think it's cool. They'll tattoo uh, some some sort of an Oriental uh, Asian character on their ankle or the nape of their neck or whatever. And uh, he didn't really cite a source. He said something like Fox News says that some of these things actually say they don't think they actually say things like uh, gullible white boy or or kick me or you know whatever. Well, I decided to do a little research on this. I couldn't find any Fox News articles on it, but I did find an NPR. Um, broadcast and they mentioned a website uh called hansi smatter h-a-n-s-i-s-m-a-t-t-e-r something like that right it's a z no no it's hansi hansi z okay that's a z anyway this is a fellow who uh a native uh, chinese speaker who will translate your tattoos for you so you send him a photo of your tat and he'll tell you, he'll break the bad news to you. <laughs> tell you what it really says. Yeah, I'm, I'm going through some of these. They they don't, uh, a lot of them really don't say what the person thinks they say. No, a lot of them don't even make sense. Right. Uh, he points out that there is no such character as the third one in there, or actually the, 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 that second character exists, but whoever did it, did it upside down. <laughs> or, or it has a dot in it that's not supposed to be there, or it changes it, the meaning. Uh, and thus... It's either gibberish or it, it means completely the opposite of what you thought. Uh, there was one guy who thought he had something about uh, knowledge is strength. He, that's what he thought it meant. Uh, but the translation actually was... Empty. Empty or... Barren. Uh, barren, yeah. yeah. Which is not exactly probably what the uh, recipient had in mind. Tattoos to begin with, 
people get tired of them. Yeah. Even even if uh, well, let's say let's say uh, a fellow has just gotten out of prison and has changed his ways, but the swastika in the middle of his forehead is just sending a negative message. Yeah. And he needs to have that thing removed. Yeah. The, there's techniques to do it, but uh, none of them are inexpensive nor pleasant. Yeah. So that that's what's going on in the way of news. Yeah. Thus far. I, when, when I was doing the research on the tattoo removal, I was actually surprised to learn that a regular practice for removal is to actually cut the thing out and then sew the skin back together from both sides around it. Yike. Yeah. So, so it's kind of like a combination. If it was a, say the tattoo of the forehead thing, uh, you get a facelift. Yeah. And it comes with it. Yeah. It takes the wrinkles right out of your forehead and removes the uh, offensive symbol as well. (laughs) I guess we probably need to be uh, getting onto our show with our guest, Dr. Jenkins speaking about gastroesophageal reflux disease. And we'll do that as soon as we get back. The content of this website and the Medically Speaking Radio Show are meant for entertainment and for general information purposes. No doctor-patient relationship is attempted or implied through the show or the website. Any medical advice, home remedies, and all other medical information on this website or radio show should not be treated as a substitute for the medical advice of your own doctor. Do not attempt any treatment mentioned on the website or the show without consulting your doctor. Always consult your own doctor if you are in any way concerned about your health. If you need a doctor and live near Placer County, call Jen at 530-886-8630. If you have a medical emergency, call 911. Medically Speaking Radio, Dr. Mark Vaughn, Auburn Medical Group, K-Hi Radio, and or our sponsors are not responsible for any diagnosis or treatment made by anyone based on any of the content of this website or the Medically Speaking Radio Show. In addition, the views and opinions expressed on the show or on linked websites are not necessarily those of Dr. Mark Vaughn, Hey Hi Radio, the Auburn Medical Group Incorporated, or any of the show sponsors. Few things in life are harder than thinking about serious illness or the death of someone you love. Research confirms that Americans want the basic services that hospice provides, care at home or in a home-like setting treatment that preserves a sense of dignity and respect. Emotional and spiritual support for patients and for their families and effective pain management. Hospice helps patients and their families deal with end-of-life challenges in a life-affirming, compassionate way that brings dignity, hope, and love to every day of life. This message of love and caring is the focus of hospice care. This message is brought to you by Sutter Auburn Faith Hospice. We can be reached at 886-6650 or click on the link for Sutter Auburn Faith Hospice on the Medically Speaking Radio website. Larry, have you ever been to Auburn Drug Company? Yeah, that's the one with the marble soda fountain at 815 Lincoln Way. Yeah, right there in front they have the marble fountain and in back is an independently owned pharmacy right here in Auburn. And that thing has been around for a long time. Since the 1800s. They are so great because they actually fill your prescriptions when you ask them to, unlike the chain drug stores that make you wait. You know, and waiting there wouldn't be a big crime because, heck, you could always go to the soda fountain. That's Auburn Drug Company at 815 Lincoln Way in downtown Auburn. Give them a call at 885-6524. Now, back to Medically Speaking with Dr. Mark Vaughn and Larry Finney. Welcome back from the break. This is Medically Speaking Radio on AM 950 KHI, and I'm your host, Dr. Mark Vaughn, and Larry Finney's here just like we were before the break. I don't know why I'm introducing us like uh, like we weren't just here. 
Well, people forget. They have short memories. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, it maybe has something to do with the fact that we're actually starting a pre-recorded interview. And yeah, like like us under yeah. that. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so don't call in. We can't bribe you with with food this week. Yes. Food is coming back in two weeks. So those of you who call in for food, like Johnny Google and uh, who are, who are some of the others, Anita and uh, you know, we could we could actually take requests for for restaurants and food if they want to write it write to us. Where would they write to us and they put in their food requests? I, I I think the best place would be on the Facebook um, Facebook page. If they like us on Facebook, then write it there. Yeah, that'd work really well. But getting on with what we promised before the break, we do have Dr. Jeffrey Jenkins of Sierra Foothill Surgical Specialist. Specialist. Yeah, got it all. That's right. I almost did it. <laughs> we have we have one more uh, one more show with someone from your group, and I'll, and I'll have it. Great. So we'll have to get you guys scheduled. Does that acronym spell anything that's pronounceable? Surgical foothills. What? No, we tried to specifically find something that wouldn't spell something bad. So <laughs> <laughs> they thought about it. Yeah. Well, uh, we we had you on the show before. We spoke about uh, bariatrics and bariatric surgery, and we'll probably talk about that again because it's still uh, quite a hot topic. But today we wanted to talk about gastroesophageal reflux disease. Uh, maybe not everybody out there recognizes that term maybe they think more in terms of um, being familiar with heartburn which ties into it what do you have to tell us about gastroesophageal reflux disease oh we can talk for days about gastroesophageal reflux or let me get my calendar commonly referred to as gird as in as in gird your loins gird your loins that's right with the belt of truth or i think people commonly refer to uh reflux meaning uh, quite a few different items or topics people will commonly see me for quote heartburn and i always have to ask them what do you mean by heartburn what is it that you're actually describing and various people describe pain in their upper abdomen to burning sensation behind their breastbone to uh, actual reflux of of fluid contents into their throat when they're laying down or when they're bending over and all of those are various types of gastroesophageal reflux, but some of those symptoms can also be coming from different types of problems in the upper GI tract. So we need to sit down and talk about those symptoms to try to decide where they're coming from and, and pinpoint it a little bit more sometimes. Now, is, is heartburn a separate uh, malady altogether, or is it a symptom of GERD? Well, heartburn can be a symptom of GERD, but it can also be a symptom of peptic ulcer disease or stomach ulcers. It can be a symptom of GI distress of various types. Uh, basically, what heartburn is, is it's the layman's term for it burns or it's bothering me in right behind my chest. Okay, so the heartburn, it would be likened to a fever. I don't come into a doctor and say, I have a fever, and that's that's the end of it. The fever is a symptom of something else. It could be a lot of different things, but in this case, heartburn could be lead you to any of a variety of different places. That's right. And in fact, that's what my first question is. Well, what do you mean by heartburn? Because people will frequently say, I have heartburn. And you can jump on that and say, oh, you have reflux. But no, you have to specify exactly what they're meaning of heartburn. In addition to heartburn, there's there's other things that can be the presenting symptom. Um, sometimes in primary care anyways, we'll get people who have a uh, persistent cough, dry cough, or will have even um, what would otherwise seem to be asthma have wheezing and when we track it down we find out that the source actually was reflux disease absolutely in fact i see people quite frequently for heartburn or hiatal hernia or gastroesophageal reflux and when you talk to them you actually can pull out of them that oh 
you have asthma and when did that start? Oh, it started a couple of years ago. Maybe it was someone who went their whole life. They never had asthma. I'm always suspicious when someone has heartburn and they have adult onset asthma because of that reason. They, they get reflux of the acid into their lungs when they're sleeping or you know, sometimes just when they're breathing and, and upright, they can get that too. And they get reactive airway disease as a result. So certainly that's one symptom we see. Just from what I'm hearing as a layman, it sounds like this is, it's, it's a physical, it's caused by physiological problems. Some, something, uh, one's uh, esophagus isn't, uh, uh, I won't say designed, but it's, it's, not, it's not the way it was originally built. It's not it's working been, like it's supposed to yeah. or what it's designed to do. I, I think this begs for a little anatomy lesson right now. Um, basically, when we swallow, we chew up our food, it goes down into the esophagus, which is a tube that goes from the back of your throat down into your stomach, which is in your upper abdomen. And that esophagus has a muscular component that helps to push the food down into the stomach. And it's a real organized wave of contraction from the mouth down into the stomach. And that's an important thing because if it didn't contract pushing the food down into the stomach, things would get stuck in your esophagus. Well, what it also does is it serves to help prevent other things from the stomach coming back up into the esophagus. And when you have reflux, sometimes that's part of the problem. The esophagus doesn't quite work right. Well, the other part of the mechanism that keeps people from refluxing all the fluid from their stomach is uh, what we call the lower esophageal sphincter, which is a high-pressure zone. It's not really a muscle, kind of like you think of as in different sphincter muscles that we have, but it's a high-pressure zone that has some muscles there that we can identify when we do special tests called manometry that actually keeps things in the stomach and from refluxing up from the stomach into the esophagus. It's like a backflow prevention valve? Yes, yeah. definitely. It's like a check valve, if you will. And so that, in addition to, there's some subtle differences in the pressure between the chest and the abdomen that also help keep the fluid inside the stomach and not refluxing up into the esophagus. So if any of those things go awry, then you can have reflux of that fluid up into the esophagus, which causes heartburn, causes regurgitation of fluid, causes overall discomfort, and what we have people come in and saying, I have heartburn. Now, this isn't something that I associate with younger people, little kids, or, you know, I, I, I see it, I'm thinking of it in terms of middle-aged folks. If they develop it later, is it because something has gone awry in, this, in these systems that you've just described, or can it be congenital? Someone's born in such a way that, you know, it creates this, this uh, acid reflux. It's not uncommon to have a child born with reflux. In fact, most of childhood reflux goes away in the first couple months of life. If it doesn't go away after the first couple months of life, then there may be something abnormal about that. And those are typically identified, sometimes a fussy baby. In fact, my youngest son was very fussy for the first several weeks of his life. And I stumbled upon it one night as I was trying to comfort him in the middle of the night. And I was tired and leaning back in a chair and had him laying on my chest and he fell asleep. And a light bulb went off in my head. I think he's got reflux. So I tilted up his bassinet and he slept for six hours. And my wife woke up panicked because she had been used to him getting up every couple hours. And he actually hadn't awoken. And she raced in there and he was happily asleep because he wasn't refluxing anymore. But in general, when you get to adulthood and you start having reflux that you didn't have before, 
there are a bunch of causes and some of those are anatomic and we can go on and talk about hiatal hernias and things like that that are anatomic abnormalities that lead to reflux. Or even uh, injuries or trauma? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I guess we would want to do exactly that, but start at the youngest and then work our way up, you know, with the congenital and then to uh, some of the more um, lifestyle-related causes. Well, let's go way back to the start. There's some congenital defects that lead to reflux. Those are specific abnormalities associated with the esophagus or the stomach that will cause uh, reflux to occur in the, the newborns. And those can be repaired surgically. Sometimes they can be treated medically, and they go away over time. Uh, diaphragmatic hernias. The diaphragm is the muscle that separates the chest from the abdomen. And there's a space called the hiatus that is the space where the esophagus can go through that diaphragm, and it becomes the stomach. And a hernia can develop in that hiatus with just a muscular space, and that space gets bigger and bigger over time. That can be abnormal to start with and be congenitally large. It just never closed or got small enough in, the, in a child. There's another type of hernia that's next to that that can lead to parts of the stomach going up into the chest and can lead to reflux. So those are mostly the congenital defects. Uh, as we get older, if you didn't have a hiatal hernia when you were younger, you can develop one just like you can develop an inguinal hernia or you know an umbilical hernia. You can develop those if you get a hiatal hernia, does not mean you're necessarily going to have reflux, but you have a higher likelihood of developing reflux. And a hiatal hernia, again, that weakness in that muscle allows part of the stomach to go up into the chest. That changes all those anatomic factors we talked about earlier so that the fluid does not remain in the stomach and it actually leaks up into the esophagus and it can cause irritation because that's acid going up into the esophagus where it's not supposed to be. Okay, so unlike your stomach, the esophagus isn't designed to, to be in, in direct contact with that acid. That's right. There's what are called mucus-producing cells in the stomach, and the stomach is lined by these cells, and also the mucus that's produced helps to protect the stomach from the acid that is naturally made in the stomach. And so there's this buffer system, if you will, that prevents the stomach from being eaten up by its own acids that it makes to digest the food. The esophagus doesn't have the same kind of cells. And so when that acid leaks up into the esophagus, it causes burning and it irritates that lining and can cause esophagitis or inflammation of the esophagus. And that can get so bad that it can cause ulcerations. It can cause scarring from healing and re repeated injury that it can cause narrowing of the esophagus that can cause problems with swallowing or what we call dysphagia. So there's a whole lot of things that can happen that are bad as a result of the acid being up in the esophagus where it's not supposed to be. And even those cells that line the esophagus adapting to this exposure to acid so that they can handle it through turning into something similar to the lining of a stomach? That's right. And that's a bad thing. That is a bad thing, and that's what we call Barrett's changes or Barrett's esophagus. And those changes are a protective mechanism that the esophagus has to prevent the acid from injuring the esophagus. So those same cells that are found in the stomach, the goblet cells that make the mucus, can be found now migrating up into the esophagus where they're not supposed to be. Those changes actually make sense. You kind of you know intuitively say, oh, yeah, that makes sense that the esophagus might want to protect itself. But along with those changes comes a higher risk for esophageal cancer that you want to be aware of. Okay, well, that was explained. I, I, my, my question was going to be, 
Well, it sounds like a good thing. Your, your esophagus has adapted. Isn't that, isn't that just fine? Isn't that perfect? But no, no. It, you've convinced me that this is a, a condition that is to be avoided, and if not avoided, taken care of quickly. Well, the vast majority of people who have reflux, it's controlled by medications or lifestyle changes. And those are the simple things that, that we can do. Um, some of those lifestyle changes are as simple as watching what you eat and avoiding certain foods, avoiding eating before you go to bed within two or three hours of going to bed, elevating the head of your bed or sleeping on a couple of pillows, um, taking antacids if you need to. Those are the simple lifestyle changes you can do. Now, one of the things that we've noticed, and in my particular specialty, is the obesity epidemic that we have going on. Um, People, when they become obese, their stomach gets bigger, their abdomen gets bigger, and it increases pressure on the stomach, forcing fluid from the stomach up into the esophagus. So obesity can lead to higher rates of gastroesophageal reflux. And so that's one of the things you can do that helps to uh, take care of your reflux is to lose weight. We're going to take a break here. When we get back, we'll continue the discussion of GERD, or gastroesophageal reflux disease, with Dr. Jen. Since 1966, Sutter Auburn Faith Hospital has been providing award-winning care to members of the community, to people just like you. The tradition of excellence continues today with our comprehensive family birth center, cancer services, 24-hour emergency care, and a whole range of outpatient services with convenient hours and locations to serve you. In addition, we've been recognized for excellence in managing heart attacks, heart failure, pneumonia, and surgical care. We are one of a select few hospitals in the state to earn recognition from VHA's West Coast region for sustained outstanding clinical performance. To learn more about Sutter Auburn Faith Hospital, visit us on the web at sutterauburnfaith.org slash medicallyspeakingradio. That's sutterauburnfaith.org slash medicallyspeakingradio. Sutter Health, with you for life. This is Dr. Mark Vaughn. I want to tell you about my dentist, Rodney Kihara. His office is located right in town at High Street and Auburn Folsom Road. His staff is pleasant. They smile when you walk in, and you know who they are because they're there every time. We're talking about Flo, Cheryl, and Judy. Their pleasant faces welcome you into the office and let you know that you're in the right spot, a comfortable place to go to the dentist. Call Dr. Kihara's office at 888-1966. That's 888-1966. The doctor would say, don't stick anything in your ear. Unless, of course, it's medically speaking. On K-High, the voice of the foothills. Now, back to Medically Speaking with Dr. Mark Vaughn and Larry Finney. Welcome back. This is Medically Speaking Radio with your hosts, Dr. Mark Vaughn and Larry Finney. And we do have our guest, Dr. Jeffrey Jenkins, here. Uh, Before the break, we were talking about gastroesophageal reflex disease talking a little bit about the process that's occurring inside of the stomach and the esophagus with the acid coming up. And uh, we did speak about the way the cells can change. And what are some of the other things that can happen as this acid is coming up into the esophagus and up into the chest and even further? Well, one of the things we talked a little bit about was the adult onset asthma. Uh, When the acid refluxes up all the way up the esophagus, it can actually leak down into the airway. And the airway then gets irritated and you can get asthma or reactive airway disease as a result of the acid chronically being around in your airway. 
And so people can all of a sudden develop problems with wheezing and shortness of breath and be treated for asthma, and it's actually coming from their gastroesophageal reflux. In the same vein, that the gastric juices can go up into the back of the throat and get into your sinuses, and you can get chronic nasal drips, uh, chronic sinusitis that is a result of the acid getting into your sinuses and irritating the sinuses. So again, sometimes the ear, nose, and throat doctor sees someone and finds that they've had new onset sinusitis and realizes that, boy, this is possibly coming from the the reflux and then refers them off to be evaluated for reflux. Wouldn't a patient with the um, asthma also have some other presenting symptom? In, in other words, it's not just my sudden inability to, to, to breathe and get air. Wouldn't I have something else going along with that that would make me suspicious that this isn't just asthma? Not always, but sometimes people develop a cough that they didn't have before and they'll develop chest pain occasionally, uh, or the retrosternal or behind the sternum burning that you can get with the, with the reflux can cause chest pain. In fact, the chest pain can be a real major symptom associated with a giant hiatal hernia. So we mentioned the hiatal hernia before, and if the hiatal hernia gets large enough, parts of the stomach can go up into the chest and get behind the heart and take up space where it's not supposed to be. The actual hiatal hernia can have things like the spleen, the colon, and I think pretty much everything's been reported in a hiatal hernia in your abdomen except the liver because the liver is pretty fixed. But people have reported the ovaries up into the, the chest because things get dragged up into the chest from giant hiatal hernias, and that's pretty impressive. If, in fact, you have such a large hiatal hernia that a large part of your stomach goes up into your chest, it can actually twist and get obstructed so that fluid won't go down through the stomach, and people will present with an acute emergency where they have severe chest pain, think they're having a heart attack, and present to the emergency room. It turns out that their heart's okay, but, oh, by the way, you have a big hiatal hernia. Now, that's not to say that you want to assume that when you have chest pain that you aren't having a heart attack because you always have to take that seriously, but that is sometimes the presenting symptom that a patient will present with is chest pain. Well, so that's a simple decision matrix for the patient. If I have chest pain, it's a problem. Absolutely. <laughs> I just need to go see the doctor quickly. Yes. Yeah. Something's wrong. It'll need to be taken care of. With all of these problems going on with this reflux disease, if it, if it is indeed what's occurring, and, and people should get evaluated by the doctor to get that determined, what are some treatments? Well, the simple treatments we mentioned, um, elevating the head of your bed, and you can do simple things such as sitting on a, or laying on a couple of pillows. You can do, uh, you can put a wedge underneath your mattress that elevates your head a little bit if you don't like the pillow thing. You can actually put blocks underneath the head of your bed, uh, whether they be bricks or whatever, they'll elevate the head of the bed six to eight inches. Those are simple things that can prevent nighttime reflux from happening. With, with the pillows, I just want to throw out this caveat that I, I wouldn't want people necessarily just bending their neck forward while their back is still flat. Right. We want to get the whole upper body kind of slanted, not just. Uh, putting your chin right. on your chest. Exactly. And that's uh, those hospital type beds that you can get at home where you can actually adjust the head of the bed up are better than just putting a couple pillows. That's why the wedge works better underneath your mattress and why elevating your, your uh, bed posts actually help better as well. And then avoiding eating two to three hours before you go to bed is really important. Uh, the things that will irritate reflux are alcohol, caffeine, 
And unfortunately, chocolate has a lot of caffeine in it, so you need to avoid chocolate. Now, there are people throwing things at the radio now, because you've, you've probably rattled off the list of their three favorite things. <laughs> and <laughs> well, that's true. And, you know, the things that, that like, people like to, to do most, you know, unfortunately, cigarette smoking is in there, too, because cigarettes will contribute more to to reflux. So that's also a good thing for your health is not only getting rid of your the smoking and the damages that can do for you, but also improving your reflux. So other things such as spicy foods like tomatoes, orange juice, those things are, are to be avoided to prevent from developing symptoms. There goes half of our sponsors for food. <laughs> and then the, the high fat foods as well. So, you know, again, you got to eat healthy, you got to drink right, you got to do all these good things to prevent your reflux. Some are saying, well, if I could, I don't want to live longer. If I, you know. A lot of people feel that way. But, but you know, when I, when I hear this, I'm thinking, it, if a person is having reflux because of it, they're doing these things in excess. Um, I, I know many, many, many people who uh, aren't doing these things in excess, but are still able to enjoy them, but aren't having reflux. So, you know, we're talking people who, you know, are obese, are eating way too much fat in the diet than they should, having alcohol in excess with it, then going right to bed right after. Well. And I don't have problems with reflux, but I have the, the chocolate-covered pork rinds washed down with uh, pineapple juice. <laughs> That'll do it. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. So, yeah, if you actually... You come up with this stuff. <laughs> if you do all those things and you've avoided eating late and you've got your head of your bed elevated, and despite those simple lifestyle changes that you've made, you're still having reflux, then we talk about medical treatments for those. And we get into the antacids, and there's essentially three different types of antacids. There's the Tums or the calcium-related antacids, and you can get to the um, proton pump inhibitors, which are the class of drugs such as Protonix or Prilosec or Nexium. Those actually will cut the acid production from the stomach completely. And then we have the H2 blockers such as Zantac or Tagamet that will help to prevent the acid from being secreted, but they're not quite as efficient as the proton pump inhibitors. So there's several drugs that we can use to prevent your reflux symptoms. Now, the second class, I think that you mentioned, that was the proton pump inhibitor that keeps your stomach from, from producing acid? Yes. Like at all? or It shuts off the little cell that, that creates acid. So how do I digest my food now? Well, that's a good question. And part of the process of digestion is related to the acid that's in your stomach. But that's not the only thing that helps to digest. There's all kinds of enzymes that are produced as well. And then just the saliva that you have in your mouth, the churning motion of the stomach, various things help to break down the food. So, But bringing that acid level down or the pH level up, making it a more basic environment, which is opposite to the acid, will change the way the food is broken down, but it'll still be digested to a certain extent. So it doesn't completely shut it off. I should put a spoonful of Arm & Hammer in my pineapple juice before chugging it down then. <laughs> Along with the tomato juice and the uh, chocolate-covered pork rinds. Yeah. These, these medicines work differently. Um, you mentioned the difference between the H2 blockers and the PPIs or the proton pump inhibitors, the Prilosec class. The antacids, the over-the-counter antacids, your Maalox, Mylantatums, they work right then and there to be a buffer to decrease the acidity fast that's right when you're feeling the symptoms and so we encourage people to go ahead and use those if they're only having symptoms say three or less times a week right and you know actually those are great for when you have immediate 
symptoms. You go and you have that chocolate-covered fried pork rind, and then you get your heartburn, and you feel like, oh, I need something right now. The Mylanta or the Tums will give you that immediate relief, hopefully. If you have to take Prilosec, that needs to be in your system working to turn off the acid. So you don't get the initial immediate relief with the Prilosec that you would with the Tums. And so if you have more chronic and reflux symptoms, you're going to be on Prilosec or Protonics, and that'll help to prevent the acid from being secreted. But the Tums will help to treat that initial symptom right there quickly. And because of this difference, that's why they came up with the Pepsid AC combination. And now there's a new combination. I don't remember the name of it. I think it might be Zegarid, where it's a combination of um, Omeprazole, which is over-the-counter, and sodium bicarbonate. Right. Which... Yeah, Arm and Hammer is what it is. It's Arm and Hammer and what is over-the-counter omeprazole, which you can get generic for fairly inexpensive. What blows me away is a patient had this prescribed to them by a specialist. Could not afford it because it was $70. I broke it down and said, okay, here's what you do. You get Arm and Hammer, take this much of it, and here's omeprazole that you can get you know, for I don't know, $10 for the whole month's worth at the local pharmacy. And uh, it was a little disturbing to see that this this specialist, that was a gastroenterologist somewhere outside of town, we'll say, who was prescribing this horribly expensive version of something that you could just go down the drugstore and get yourself. Right, and that's unfortunate because you know it's a good example of how the drug companies find a combination of drugs that are easily available and not proprietary or not on patent still, and they create this drug that's now on patent and charge outrageous amounts for it where we have them available already. And, you know, Zantac and Tagamet, which Tagamet's been around for 30 years probably, maybe not that long, but probably since about the 1980s. Yeah, it's been close to 30 years that Tagamet's been around. And Tagamet's a very effective antacid that we can use. And people tend to forget about it because we have better drugs. We have Zantac, which is in the same class. We have Prilosec and Protonics and Nexium, which are in the next class, which are more expensive but are more effective but sometimes Tagamet works just fine. Yeah, I, I, I've always been a, a Zantac user myself or the generic name ranitidine. And, and the reason is because there's less drug interactions than the Tagamet. Tagamet, you have to be careful what you're taking it with. Right. But the bottom line is you can get symptomatic relief from Tums, which are several bucks for you know 50 or 60 tablets. And that's not going to cost you much to take that, and you get the same kind of relief, as long as you're not having real severe symptoms that require you to be on a daily proton pump inhibitor. The daily proton pump inhibitor, if somebody needs it, we still encourage them to go ahead and use it and be in touch with either yourself or a gastroenterologist to get uh, checked on a routine basis. Why is it that we're still checking? If we're controlling the symptoms with a PPI, why do we go and say, hey, if you're on this stuff chronically, we need to put the scope down and check every once in a while. There's a reason for that. Well, there's a couple of reasons. One is you want to make sure that there's nothing else causing the symptoms that you're having. So we do have an instance of gastric cancer in our society and esophageal cancer in our society. And as we mentioned before, chronic long-term reflux can lead to Barrett's esophagus and changes that increase your risk for esophageal cancer. So if you're on chronic anti-reflux medications, you want to make sure, number one, you're not having a major problem such as that. Or is it another source of the discomfort that you're having? Is it a peptic ulcer that you're having and it's not reflux? And that needs to be treated as well. This is another good spot to take a break because when we get back, we'll be talking about treatments 
surgical treatments, non-medical treatments. Uh, and, and also, we also uh, before we go on the break, we do need to talk about what are the problems with long-term use of the Prilosec. Why not use it long-term as long as something else isn't going on? And we found that it's good to avoid some problems. And what are those? Well, one of the problems is, uh, just as Larry mentioned, we cut off all the acid in the stomach. And some of the medications are affected by acid reduction. So your medications might not be as effective. You can also get certain types of anemia related to uh, lack of acid in your in your stomach as well. There's other uh, medical issues that can be going on associated with long-term acid reduction. Okay, and then we'll come back. When we come back, we'll talk about uh, surgical treatments. This is Medically Speaking Radio. We'll be right back. This is Dr. Mark Vaughn. I wanted to let you know a little bit about our practice at the Auburn Medical Group. The physician, nurses, and front desk personnel all approach the patient, asking themselves the question, How would I want to be treated if I was in the patient's shoes? Listen to what one of our patients has to say about her experience at the Auburn Medical Group. My name is Susie Brown. I just want to sincerely thank that group of people for being there for me in some emergency situations. They are very efficient. Their staff, including their receptionist, even when you call her, she's got uh, sympathy and compassion for you. And when you're ill, that's what you need. The nurses, the nurse staff is wonderful, and Dr. Vaughn listens to everything you say, and they just get on things. They do not let anything lag. If you need a doctor, call us at 886-8630 or look at our website at auburnmedicalgroup.com. Hello, this is attorney Max Beeman. I specialize in frivolous lawsuits, and I've never lost a case. You heard me right. I've never lost a case, and I've done hundreds. No case too frivolous. Was your coffee too hot? Was your soup too cold? Did the traffic signals make you miss an important appointment? I get big awards from my clients in cases just like these. In these tough economic times, you can't afford not to sue. Winning a lawsuit can change your life, and I can make that happen. Call me, Max Beeman, 916-384-0237. 916-384-0237. Now, back to Medically Speaking with Dr. Mark Vaughn and Larry Finney. Welcome back from the break. This is Medically Speaking Radio with your hosts, Dr. Mark Vaughn and Larry Finney. And we're here with Dr. Jeffrey Jenkins talking about gastroesophageal reflux disease. We talked about the medical treatments. If the medical treatments aren't getting the effect or somebody doesn't want to uh, have the potential problems of being on long-term proton pump inhibitor therapy, what, what else do we have available? Well, we have surgical treatments for sure, um, which is right down my alley, which is why people come to see me. One of the reasons people come to see me is they're not getting symptomatic relief despite being on daily antacid therapy. And certainly if someone's being treated with antacids and they're not getting relief because either they have regurgitation, which the importance between reflux and regurgitation is, regurgitation is when you bend over to pick something up and fluid comes out of your stomach and refluxes up into your mouth. That's something that no amount of antacids are going to cure. You can get rid of the acid so it quits bathing the esophagus and quits giving you pain, but that reflux or regurgitation fluid is going to keep coming up. And and that's a phenomenon completely separate and distinct from vomiting. Absolutely. That's just something that people will experience. They bend over to tie their their shoes, they drop something, they go to pick it up, and all of a sudden fluid, you know, involuntarily comes out and they get it in the back of their throat or they get it up their nose, and it can be really disturbing, obviously. Um, The other thing is at night when you're laying down flat, we mentioned if someone doesn't prop the head of their pillow or the head of their bed up, 
they can get the regurgitation of the fluid and get reflux symptoms. Despite doing all those things, sometimes people have such bad regurgitation that it'll actually come up and regurgitate and cause them to cough and choke, and they'll wake up coughing and choking. So these people are not good candidates to, to buy those inversion, gravity inversion uh, exercise machines that you see like at Big Five where you're hanging upside down to elongate your spine. It's just a bad idea. I guess if you hang long enough, all the fluid will come out and you don't have to worry about it. No, um, you know, as far as the alternative treatments other than medical, there are some endo- endoscopy therapies. In other words, you can treat reflux with uh, non-invasive therapies through the the uh, video scope going through the mouth. That's a new treatment out there that's called an endoplication or an endocinch, and the concept is to create a little check valve that's not there by placing sutures through an endoscopic instrument down through your mouth and into your stomach. The problem with that is it's still experimental, and it's still not showing great long-term Results. So that the jury's still out on that particular type of treatment. But we may find later in the future that someone improves it, perfects it, and it becomes the standard that we, we use instead of surgical treatment. But for now, if you aren't getting relief from your medical treatment, then surgery is the next option. And really what people come to see me for is either they're not getting relief from their anti-reflux medications or they're getting some relief and they just are tired of dealing with it, and they're tired of taking a pill every day or two pills every day, and maybe I have a 30- or 40-year-old patient who comes to see me, and they're taking antacids for their, their entire life, and they're saying, man, I've got 30, 40 years left. I don't want to take this pill my whole life. Is there something for me? And we have anti-reflux surgery. Now, I hope that people don't have to wait to get to that point to know that there's surgery available for a refractory reflux. And I say refractory because surgery is not for everybody. It's not for someone who just has reflux once in a while. In fact, probably 25 to 40% of the population will experience reflux of some type throughout their life. It'll be infrequent, but some at some point in time, a good, you know, almost half of us will experience it. There is a population of people, maybe 7 to 10% of the population that actually have very frequent reflux. And that's the group of people that will ultimately end up in my office seeking surgical alternatives to treating their reflux. I'm, I'm blanking here. I had a question, and I completely forgot what it was. As my father would say, it must have been a lie. It had to do with, uh, oh, earlier on you said when, when uh, there's, there's one class of, of, um, of medications that cuts off the stomach acid altogether. And we started talking about the interactions and I, 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 and I, I thought of this it was just before we went to the break, and I didn't get a chance to ask the question. But what I'm thinking of is like extended release type medications. Is that what we're talking about? Because if there's nothing, if there's no stomach acid to help dissolve that pill, how does it release its its magic? I'm thinking of like uh, extended release philodipine or something like that. That's a blood pressure med. Well, extended release meds work differently, and they're designed to dissolve at different locations in the GI tract. So some of them are designed to dissolve in the stomach and release their their granules or whatever's inside the capsule. And you see those gel caps that have the little granules in them. Those are oftentimes extended release. Sometimes the pills are, are made of a type of carrier that won't dissolve until it gets to a certain place in the GI tract. So it doesn't necessarily rely on the acid, but those that do rely on the acid to break down the carrier in the pill or the capsule 
will be affected, and so maybe they won't dissolve as well, and they'll get back to the rest of the GI tract that doesn't have a, such an acidic environment, and they won't react or they won't work as well. So okay, so now we're back to surgery, and and the obvious question is, will it hurt? You know, it depends on what kind of surgery. Does, for example, does repairing the the hiatal hernia does that take care of it, or you you have to go after the underlying problem? Right. And so, as we mentioned before, anatomically, there's a, a few things that that contribute to reflux, and we try to correct those uh, surgically. So one of them is to repair the hiatal hernia. So there's a muscle of the diaphragm. If there's a big defect, we have to pull everything out of the defect. So if parts of the stomach or the spleen or the colon are up in the chest, we need to pull all that back down into the abdomen where it's supposed to be anatomically. Once we've taken all of those organs and we've put them back where they're supposed to be, then the defect has to be closed. And we close that hiatal defect with stitches. And we do this all laparoscopically or through minimally invasive techniques through small incisions, anywhere from a quarter of an inch to a half inch in length. And usually I use about five of those incisions to do the procedure. And so by removing the organs out of the chest, you take them back down to the area they're supposed to be. That pressure differential I talked about with slightly different pressure in the chest and the abdomen gets restored. You close the hiatus, that fixes the hiatal hernia, and then you bring down that that muscular part of the lower esophagus, what we call the lower esophageal sphincter, into its normal anatomic position. Those things will recreate most of what's needed for anti-reflux. Now, some people would argue that you fix the hiatal hernia, then you fix the reflux. And there's a lot of arguments to or for and against that. The reality is now that you've brought everything back down, the best treatment is what we call a fundoplication. And that's a what we what we euphemistically refer to as a wrap because you actually wrap the upper part of the stomach around the lower part of the esophagus and you sew the stomach to itself and you create this 360 degree valve or a check valve as we talked about that helps prevent fluid from refluxing back up into the esophagus, but yet it allows the food and everything to go back down into the stomach like it normally is. If you repair a hiatal hernia and you don't do a fundoplication, some people will get good symptomatic relief because the hiatal hernia was the problem. Now keep in mind, not everybody has a hiatal hernia. And so you can make an argument that, well, it's not the hiatal hernia that's causing the reflux. And that's absolutely true. It's other things. So that's why the fundoplication is so important and why typically when we do a hiatal hernia repair, we include a fundoplication with that. Kind of like the mechanic today. As long as I got that car up on the rack, we're doing the, uh, you know, doing one thing. Well, let's, let's change your timing belt while we're at it, you know. Yeah, or you fix the brake pads, yeah. you're going to maybe fix the calipers at the right, same time. Right. You know, there's there's a lot of reasons. But um, so that fundoplication is an important part of the operation. Now you asked, is it going to hurt? I wish I could tell you no. But reality is it's not going to hurt as much as an open procedure would because instead of doing it through a 6 or 8 or 10 inch incision depending on how big the person is we're doing it through these five small incisions that aren't going to hurt as bad and the recovery is going to be much quicker so in general people will experience post operative pain the day of surgery it gets better the next day it gets better progressively each day till about 10 to 14 days almost all the pain's gone and they feel very very good at that point in time. You know, I think most people would take that trade-off, too, if in exchange for that temporary discomfort, that their quality of life is going to be vastly improved because they've gotten rid of this whole acid reflux thing. Well, it, exactly. And, you know, by the time people get to see me, it's a problem. 
and they've been dealing with this for a long time and they've had it in their mind that I think I want to go that route. And it's not just like, oh, someone offered me surgery. No, I got to think about that. They've generally thought about it for a while and they're ready to have surgery. And invariably, the reason I love this operation, the fundoplication so much, is because it changes people's lives so dramatically and it's so easy to do. So having done these for a while, do you have examples of long-term, you know, when people get fixed like this, we're talking years and years and... Well, the quoted success rate, and you can kind of determine what success is, but we consider symptomatic relief, is about 90% at five years. So you look at all comers, 90% of them at five years will have symptomatic relief. There's a small percentage of people who will be put back on proton pump inhibitors or H2 blockers or antacids of some sort because they have some sort of what we call dyspepsia, you know, heartburn symptoms that they describe. If you were to look at all those patients who maybe five years out had been put on some type of medication by their primary care doctor and you were to do some studies looking for evidence of reflux, a large percentage of them will not have reflux. So the anti-reflux part of the operation will have worked. Now, do you say that's good symptomatic relief if they're on an anti-reflux medication despite the fact they had surgery? Probably not necessarily. But if they're on it for one reason and they can stop it and their symptoms are still gone then that's symptomatic relief. If, however, someone's had an operation and they're back on those H2 blockers, and a certain percentage of them will be eventually, and probably on the order of 10% short-term after the operation won't get perfect relief, that is not necessarily a success. But I think 90% at five years is a pretty important number. Well, even I, I would consider that a victory of sorts nonetheless because if you're avoiding esophageal cancer and all these other nasty things that go along with it or, or just having to suffer with with those symptoms for the rest of your life you know i i'll take the pill <laughs> well the most dramatic benefit i see are those people who have large hiatal hernias that come in with chest pain and that's actually a potential life-threatening problem because you can get your stomach twisted up inside your chest to where the blood supply of the stomach will get cut off now keep in mind this is an unusual complication related to a large hiatal hernia so very few people would have this but you get a person who's got a large amount of chest pain and recurrent episodes where they can't swallow because their stomach's going up inside their chest and you fix that and you get rid of that chest pain they were having and you get rid of maybe asthma that they were having for several years you get rid of that reflux where they're not having to lay with their head elevated Uh, those are all great symptomatic relief and you know i just saw a patient today in the office who was actually, you know, feeling great because for many years, for decades, she's been dealing with reflux and finally got sick of it and said, I want to have surgery. She's had it and it's like, wow, I can't believe this is, this is gone. It's just amazing. And I, I love to see that because I know it's such a simple solution for someone who's having a terrible problem. It would be so good to be able to return to the chocolate covered pork rinds. <laughs> I, I don't Not know that if I'd want to go there. I, I don't know. I don't know. We'll have to talk to Dr. Diane about that. She's, she's going to be on here in the next month or two. Uh, do you know what the uh, cost of these procedures is? Offhand, I don't. Um, I can give a rough estimate. Obviously, if you have insurance, your cost is going to be based on your copay. Uh, most people have some type of a copay, 10%, 20%, whatever it might be. If, for instance, you had a high deductible health savings account plan where you're responsible for $5,000 of your uh, healthcare. You're going to spend that $5,000 on the hospital bill and the surgeon's fee and all that. But if you have routine insurance that covers almost everything, say 80%, your 20% copay may be on the order of several hundred dollars. Uh, 
So it's, you know, very, very affordable, very reasonable. And, you know, think about how much money you're spending on those medications every month too. And that's something to consider. Uh, in addition to some of the other problems we talked about with taking the proton pump inhibitors long-term, we didn't mention this new thing that's coming out with risk for osteoporosis with long-term use of them. That's something that we're looking at uh, and having to actually do some follow-up with patients for that. Larry, you had asked a question about um, medication interactions with the loss of acidity. I had spoken earlier about medication interactions, specifically with Tagamet compared to Zantac, and it was something different. It's that it actually changes the way the liver metabolizes these other medicines so that you get either too high or too low a level, and it can actually be a problem with um, medicines that change the heart's rhythm, uh, electrical changes that uh, can be risky. Other final thoughts, words, advice? Well, one of the things that I can go back to, you mentioned that reminded me, when we first started prescribing the proton pump inhibitors, when I was in medical school, which seemed like eons ago, it was 25 years ago roughly, um, the thought was that proton pump inhibitors caused cancer in the pancreas or caused tumors in the pancreas. And subsequently, they they had a lot of long-term studies that showed, no, it was safe long-term. But this just goes to show that you can have a drug that you think is safe in the long term, and at some point in time, something else might come up. So it's important that we continue to follow the side effect profiles and to look for new and different uh, effects of medications that we're given people. And, you know, there are a lot of people out there who are perfectly happy taking the proton pump inhibitors because their symptoms are gone. And that may be totally fine for the next 50 years. Who knows? But we always have to be on the lookout that maybe taking those medications will turn something on or off and change the way the body works. And so that's what's important about learning more about the osteoporosis, for instance. Okay. That brings us to the end of another show. Dr. Jenkins, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate having you here. We'll immediately try to get you scheduled for another show in the future after we get done here. A live one. A, a, a live show, yeah, so you can have some callers trying to get sandwiches from you. Well, thank you so much. I, I always appreciate uh, talking with you because you make it so easy. <laughs> thank you. Uh, we do remind our listeners that they can learn more about Medically Speaking Radio at our website, medicallyspeakingradio.com. They can also like us on Facebook. It's called Medically Speaking Radio. And, and and send us their food giveaway suggestions if they have requests. Yeah, yeah. Or they can even ask clinical questions or talk about uh, their own experience uh, that's similar to what we've been talking to uh, talking about on the show. Uh, if your friends want to hear the show, they can find it on iTunes. It's listed under Medically Speaking Radio. It's free, and apparently there's thousands of downloads of people listening to the show. So I'm glad that they're enjoying it. Also, if you are a, a listener on um, through iTunes, please rate. Medically Speaking Radio as a podcast on iTunes that helps us out. Uh, We are looking forward to being back in the studio in two weeks. Next week we'll have another pre-recorded show and uh, until next time this is Dr. Mark Vaughn, Larry Finney and this time Dr. Jeffrey Jenkins telling all of our listeners to stay in good health.